Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day and welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1375. I am Rob Jan and co-host Megan McHugh is on shore leave today. So I am Le Jan, the last Jan on Earth today. Thank you to Alex for the introduction to our show today, and we are entitled The Da Vinci Code, because of one of the books, well, it's actually a film that we're looking at today, and a podcast title would be The Look of Potter Fett, in terms of a book <laughs> or a television series. So much confusion, but that's all right, that's zero G all over. Now... First thing we're looking at today is a film called Finch. Now, this is a science fiction movie, post-apocalyptic. Yeah, I know. We lean into it, we back up to it, we dock with it, and we are unashamedly (laughs) the ones to embrace it because you can never have too much apocalypse, eh? Well, yeah, maybe you can. It's a 2021 US-American film. It's directed by Michael Sapochnik, and he is an English director, and he came up through the filmmaking ranks as a storyboard artist working on, well, amongst other productions, Danny Boyle's iconic train spotting in 1996. He's also an Emmy Award-winning director of television episodes for Game of Thrones, and he's contributed to genre shows like Fringe, uh, Wake, Falling Skies, Under the Dome, Iron Fist, and Altered Carbon. I think he directed the pilot for that. He is the showrunner for the Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, as well, as directing the 2010 science fiction film Repo Man, which is what it sounds like on the tin, only if they sent repossession agents after people who defaulted on their payments for artificial body organs. Did I say Repo Man? I was going to say, don't confuse it for Repo Man, it's Repo Men. (laughs) So just just so you know. Now, Finch was written from a spec script by Craig Luck and Ivor Powell. And Luck is a production assistant and also a writer. And Powell is a veteran producer and also a writer too, known for his work on classic Ridley Scott science fiction movies like Blade Runner and Alien. So a couple of sure hands at the helm here. Okay, so Finch, it's the title character and it's played by Tom Hanks. And this is a film that's come to Netflix or is it Apple Plus? Oh, let me just double check on that. Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus, I should say. Not everything gets into the net. All right, so Tom Hanks, well, you know, actor, producer, director, planetary good guy, all those sorts of things. I think I saw him back in 1984 
first in uh, the Splash movie, you know, the Mermaid movie with Daryl Hannah. And he was doing a lot of those sort of genial comedies back then, but that does happen to be a fantasy one. He was also in the 1980s slasher film, He Knows You Are Alone. Now, as an actor, producer, writer and director, he's even lent his voice in the case of animated movies or as a narrator to all sorts of science fiction, fantasy and horror genre productions like Big, The Burbs, Radio Flyer, Toy Story the movies, where he's um, Woody, the, <laughs> the cowboy toy, The Green Mile, Polar Express, Cars, The Ant Bully, Evan Almighty, City of Ember, Angels and Demons. A little bit of a franchise there himself. Where the Wild Things Are and Cloud Atlas too. Probably my favourite of that lot, well beyond the Toy Story movies, is Cloud Atlas. Uh, as a producer, he's also, and a writer too, he's also worked on the Earth to the Moon series and Magnificent Desolation, Walking on the Moon. Got quite a, an interest in real space history and has been trying to get a Matt Mason movie going for years. Now, that's a, <laughs> a bit of a blast off from the past, Matt Mason being an action figure from the, uh, the 1960s, specifically tailored towards space adventures. And so, well, you know, I can see why they want to do a movie of that. Anyway, he is the character of Finch, basically a lone survivor, well, lone human survivor, in this apocalyptic situation 10 years after I think it was a solar flare, a gamma burst has ripped up the Earth's ozone layer and caused all sorts of problems, uh, largely due to the fact that you can't really walk around outside in your normal clothing in the daytime. It's destroyed crops. You know, it's just a whole bad deal. Laid waste to the planet, essentially. Obviously, uh obviously hit enough earth over 24 hours at least because otherwise it would just affect one half of the planet. Well, that would also have flow-on effects too. Very complicated, all of that sort of stuff. So he is basically on his own except for one drone robot called Dewey and a dog. (laughs) So, you know, here it is, all of an actor's worst nightmares, working opposite a dog and a drone robot. And soon, of course, he has to have a kid enter the equation too, which is to say one that he builds himself, basically a developing AI robot. Now, you get some hints that um, they have actually worked a lot on this beforehand, so it doesn't sort of come get cut out of whole digital cloth, as it were. So they're pretty subtle hints as you go through, but I buy that. You know, I don't think he's just like become the first genius to create AI after the apocalypse. Anyway, so the robot is voiced, the other robot, is voiced by Caleb Landry-Jones. We know him mostly on Zero-G as playing Banshee in X-Men First Class, but he was also in the movie Get Out and Free billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and also in The Dead Don't Die, as well as the 2017 reboot of Twin Peaks. Uh, as for the dog, the dog is called Sean, is uh, played by a dog called Seamus. So <laughs> that's it. That's your cast, basically, for this movie. Now, you'd think 
that that would have been the perfect film to film during the pandemic. But actually, it was done in uh, February 2019, over a couple of months. So they did a lot of filming in Albuquerque, New Mexico, without running into Walter White or anybody else like that. Although, I think Caleb Landry Jones might have also had a role in Breaking Bad at one stage too, so you never know. All right, so originally it was called uh, Bios and eventually got retitled to Finch and uh, bought by Apple TV+. Plus. Now, he's set up in St. Louis, which is obviously devastated by the events of the apocalypse. He's by himself, apart from the, the robot and the dog and the new robot that he's going to build. And apros to the apocalyptic, there's much about Castaway that this film reminds me of. Uh, Finch is very much the man alone, uh, just as he is in Castaway. Wilson the basketball was his mate on that deserted island, and he's, he's got the, the two bots and a beastie. Now, in regard to the dog, he's not unlike Will Smith's character in I Am Legend, who had a dog for a time, and indeed had a dog of a time in that movie. And I think the relationships, basically, because uh, Hanks is acting against however they've created the robot. I'm presuming that mostly they're doing some kind of digital jiggery-pokery and possibly some uh, animatronics as well as puppeteering. Uh, The dog is basically a real dog. Now, having said that, you never know. Sometimes they can throw in a digital hound every now and then and just sometimes you just can't tell. Anyway, it's probably a very well-trained dog and that seems to be the case. And... You know, this is Tom Hanks. He knows what he's doing. He's been around the block, though perhaps not the apocalyptic block, quite a few times. And so he's able to just step up to the plate and basically carry the movie as the human factor that we can relate to throughout this. And he's got an interesting story arc in in this and a lot of nuance in the actual character that comes through and the way he acts, how he reacts to things. Uh, you know, and I, I think they've actually done a solid bit of work here, and this indeed is a, a solid bit of work from Hanks in terms of performance. All right, now, you know, we get to the procedural in this one. It's pretty good. They show Finch decontaminating his radiation suit and robots when he comes inside. Uh, the holes in the ozone layer are a constant hazard in the daytime. I'm a little bit curious about, um, you know, you can stand in the shade in some places and not be affected by this. I would have thought that the the uh, solar radiation would have had a bit of scatter too. But then again, mostly he's wearing his suit. Uh, you'd think he'd be wearing sunglasses all the time. Stuff like that, you know, maybe, you know, factor 10,000 sunblock or something, but... You know, maybe even carrying an umbrella a lot, that would be a good idea too. But, you know, I, I, there are some moments that I'll, I, I go, well, you know, that doesn't quite make sense. But we'll go with that. I've done my research, which is to say I've gone on YouTube and listened to a couple of scientists discussing the science of this movie. And, you know, mostly they sort of give them a pass on, on most sorts of things. A, a couple of times I think they're just basically doing artistic license to show things happening maybe a little bit faster than uh, they might otherwise have happened in real life. But, you know, you've got a movie, you've got to move along through it. So that's the way I feel about the procedural. They do things like him staying indoors at night to avoid other human survivors. Uh, 
So he actually has to forage in the daytime. He drives a vehicle that's very suitable to his foraging needs and able to easily cope with rubble and car-strewn streets. And he has a power supply that he's kind of rigged up. All of these things, they, they mean something. These are the, uh, the, the building bricks of this story. And if you don't attend to our natural curiosity, and we probably do have a lot now after living, living through two years of pandemic, um, you've got to convince us that these things are actually happening. So generally, I, I think that's all right. And of course, he has his music too. You know, you're not going to go through an apocalypse without having some kind of tunes to keep you company. Uh, probably why Zero G exists, come to think of it. And so we'll give you a track here from, not from the actual movie soundtrack, because it doesn't actually have an album kicking around yet. But this is a song that features quite heavily in the movie. And this particular version of it is by... Eugene Aberbeck, and you'll know what it is when I play it. This is Annie Lee, and I'm Morn Kransky of the Kransky Sisters, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 FM. Lock up your meat safe and beware of the machine with the claw. Hmm. We had a little bit of an instrumental riff on Don McLean's American Pie from... Eugene Aberbach's album Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, Light Night Saxophone there. And the song American Pie does feature in the Apple TV Plus movie Finch, which we are discussing here on Zero G, in our science fiction and fantasy mode, very much in science fiction in this one, set 10 years after a gamma burst or solar flare has destroyed the ozone layer, at least sections of it, about planet Earth, and has caused severe, severe climate change, wrecked crops and laid the planet waste, leaving Tom Hanks's one of the few survivors holed up underground in St Louis. But he has to move from there and thereby hangs the tale of the film. Yes, it's a road trip with two robots and a dog along for company. Now, we were talking about procedural just before we had that track and I thought that this film did quite a few things that felt very realistic to me that you might miss if you're just kind of thinking about the, the usual tropes of this kind of film. I thought that he, his idea of uh, basically not seeking out other survivors, his basic strategy is to stay away from them, run and hide and so on, that's actually a pretty good survival strategy if you aren't already part of a community, which of course is the best way to survive these things, unless of course it's The Walking Dead, in which case you become a zombie magnet very soon. And every nutter in the, in the neighbourhood homes in on you to steal your stuff. But, you know, that's pretty much the cliche. But I like the way that he did that in this. And the, uh, the robots are great in it too. One is deliberately named after both the library catalogue system, the Dewey Decimal System, and possibly a nod to Silent Running from 1970s, a space science fiction movie with an environmental theme and... Uh, and Bruce Stern and the space drones in that, which were named Huey, Dewey and Louie. A bit of trivia there. I don't know. I haven't found a, an interview yet which says that, um, that Dewey is named after that in particular. Could go either way. Both, as Star-Lord would say. Bit of both. All right. Now, 
this film, Finch, it's um, all in there. It is very, very... Look, depending on how you deal with emotion on screen, you're going to say, well, maybe it's a bit mawkish and a, you know, a bit too melodramatic. And Is it just too sweet? Are we watching a Steven Spielberg film here? Are we in the, in the, uh, the regions of AI or something like that? I don't know. After two years in the pandemic, I actually quite crave a bit of <laughs> feel-goodness in a film. And there is indeed a, a bit of that in this one. But that will be down to your individual taste. So I'll leave it up to you to pass judgment upon that. You know, if you come out of this film and go, oh, come on. Well, you know, you're perfectly entitled to that. I must admit, I did get a bit misty-eyed. Perhaps the radiation was a bit too much for the old ocular implants. Maybe it was the constantly blowing desert sands that were in my eye. There are... There's quite a bit of interesting sort of tension ramped up throughout this film. Some of it isn't paid off, but that doesn't matter because, as I said, there's some things happening in this film that are a little bit atypical for this kind of post-apocalyptic movie. So, yeah, I thought it was a, a bit different. Uh, and You may have other expectations of how this is going to come out. And one of the things I really liked is that they use solar power to... Uh, power some of the vehicles in this, which uh, makes a great change from the usual Mad Max fight for gasoline, which I'm rather bored with in these kinds of things. You know, in reality, I guess you would actually have something that you could uh, get renewable energy from, particularly 10 years on when most of the petrol and diesel and so on, all of that stuff would be thickened into gel by then, unless you were drilling for it yourself and doing the whole Mad Max thing and having a colony and all that sort of stuff. That's not part of this movie. So, yeah, Finch. Look, I, I thought it was a, a pretty good entry into this catalogue. Yes, you know, older science fiction fans, you're going to say, well, that's a bit of this and that's a bit of that and that robot reminds me of this and da 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 Yeah, OK, go through all that, have fun. <laughs> you know, I can do that too. Uh, but I, I feel like that's a bit... Um, of a rookie way of analysing films sometimes. And, yeah, we do that because it is fun. But, you know, you've got to move beyond the fact that you've seen everything before. I know. We're all curmudgeons. Maybe not. Finch, it's on Apple TV+, and it stars Tom Hanks, and I thought they did a pretty good job of it. In zero-G terms of the, yeah, nah, maybe we'd probably have to go with the I can't even pronounce R2-D2 language. I don't have a uh, protocol droid to pronounce it. It'd be like, rating would be like, beep, 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 something like that anyway. Now, we've got a, how does R2 do that? He usually does a, a whistle somewhere in there, doesn't he? Hmm. I won't subject you to that. All right, now, we've got a song here from The Aquabats, Myth, Legends and Other Amazing Adventures, Volume 2. And this is the radiation song. And I think it does get a bit Mad Maxian uh, in its little trip across the recording heads here on Zero G on Free Triple R FM with Rob Jan, radiation song. Make sure you have all of your seals fastened and maybe put up that little parasol too. The harsh glare of... Now, unfriendly son. Hey, this is Craig Charles, Dave Listed off Red Dwarf. You're listening to Space Corps Directive 3 Triple R FM. So smeg and get on with it. 
Yeah, radiation song there from the Aquabats Myths, Legends and Other Amazing Adventures, Volume 2. Just to play out our little discussion here on Zero G about Finch. Well, it's a monologue, isn't it, really? Our co-host Megan McHugh is off on shore leave today and she surely does deserve to have some leave at the moment. Now... We are looking at the book of Boba Fett. I did discuss this briefly last week, but I've now actually got some uh, episodes under my utility belt about this show. And it is a spin-off in tandem show with The Mandalorian, which we have had a heck of a lot of fun watching on Disney+. Plus. Now, this is about the character of Boba Fett, a fictional character in the Star Wars universe who I remember him back in 1978 where he appeared as an animated character in the Star Wars Holiday Special. I think Don Franks was the voice behind it then. And we later on saw him appear in the original Star Wars trilogy, first in The Empire Strikes Back, where he was played by Jeremy Bullock and voiced by Jason Wingreen. Then he appeared in Return of the Jedi briefly before getting knocked into the mouth of a sandworm, sarlacc-type creature on Tatooine while he was being employed by the Empire to hunt down Han Solo. So... I never really got much into the character of Boba Fett back in the day. He seemed to be a bit of a comic relief character, really. Supposed to be the most dangerous bounty hunter in the galaxy, not so much. And then that was kind of nailed down a bit, where we saw his father being a bit bumbling himself in uh, the later Star Wars prequels. And I remember being particularly unimpressed by Jango Fett's really good idea of jumping into an arena to fight hand-to-hand with hundreds of Jedi Knights. That seemed to be a bit non-survival to me. And, of course, that ended with him being killed and his young son, Boba, being the one who takes on the family armour, which is to say the Mandalorian suit. If I get a bit confused there, it is because it is confusing. So you've got Jango Fett, who was the model for the clones who become the clone army in the Star Wars universe, which doesn't mean to say that every stormtrooper underneath the stormtrooper helmets is a clone of Jango Fett. No, 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 that's something else entirely. It's the clone troopers who are the ones who are based upon the Jango Fett pattern. Not really sure about his um, having the Mandalorian armour and later on his uh, son ends up with it too. They're yet to fully explore that in the television series, but no doubt we'll get some more of that. Okay, I can just throw out all of the expanded universe canon, uh, which is kind of useful for me because I've read none of that particular character's backstory in that, so I don't care. (laughs) That's all there is to it. All right, so... We had uh, a young Boba Fett played um, by Daniel Logan in uh, Attack of the Clones in 2002. And now we've kind of reverted to the guy who played Jango Fett, which is to say Tamura Morrison, a New Zealand actor. 
And he, we will remember, was in the uh, the Once Were Warriors movie back in 1994 and its sequel, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. And we also know him as playing uh, Arthur Curry's dad, Thomas, in the Aquaman movie in 2018, which is kind of cool, really, when you think about it. <laughs> it means that Aquaman's dad is Boba Fett. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not go there. He is also known for doing the voice of the title character in Disney's Moana in 2016. And I think he did another DC movie too, along with Aquaman. Uh, he was in, uh, well, Green Lantern in 2011. But we don't have to mention that if we don't want to. <laughs> so his character in this, it's set... Um, after Return of the Jedi, and okay, so this is um, really because it's a spin-off from The Mandalorian now, and they've been trying to get some kind of Boba Fett property up and running for a while now, whether it was going to be one of those standalone movies, and that was one of the, the favourite ideas for a, a, a an SA, Um whether they're going to do it for that, well, you know, after the kind of the uh, the tanking of the solo movie, basically, um, they backed off from the, that concept and ended up being revived in the wake of the very successful Mandalorian series. So once again, John Favreau is the uh, the guy who's created this one, and working with a lot of other directors and creative talents as well, because the first episode is actually directed by none other than. Robert Rodriguez, which is kind of appropriate because he's pretty good at that kind of um, desert western trope and he's done quite a bit of that sort of thing. And so he just fits right into this one. It is set on Tatooine at the moment. So uh, Boba has gone there to become a kind of a demo, a daimyo. He's... Um, Stepping into or onto the the litter that Jabba the Hutt used to sit upon, he is now the new crime boss, and he's even operating out of Jabba's old palace in the desert. So he's not actually running around on a, a well, so to speak, on a litter. He prefers to be on his own two feet. Anyway, Tamara Morrison is now Boba Fett in this context kind of makes sense and he's very much uh, sidekicking sidekick is none other than Fennec Shand now we've seen her in the second season of the Mandalorian in chapter 9 the marshal and uh, then she was reintroduced in chapter 14 the tragedy and that second one was directed by Robert Rodriguez so you know working with a character who's already got a bit of history in the Mandalorian series and now pushed into this one. Um, obviously, these characters have also spun off across other sorts of Star Wars media as well, so we won't go there. Now, Morrison works very well with Ming-Na Wen, and there is a genuine chemistry there, although I have to admit, I'm thinking, why is she his sidekick and not the other way around? Well, in canon, it's to do with the fact that he saved her life. So I guess that kind of makes sense in terms of this. But, you know, it does make me wonder who actually is the brains in the outfit. That's all right. We've had uh, cleverer two ICs before. So, okay, you've got 
Boba and Fennec. They're in Jabba's old palace. They've got to create a whole thing there. There has to be interactions with all sorts of other things. And I should mention that we've seen... I've been watching Ming-Na Wen recently uh, trying to catch up with the last season of Marvel's Agents of Shia, where, of course, she plays Agent Melinda May. And we also saw her... Uh, in a cameo appearance in the live-action remake of Milan in 2020. Uh, now, in this context, the posse or the entourage of people includes Matt Berry playing the voice of AD8, who's uh, a leftover torture droid <laughs> from, that's now working for Boba Fett. And that's, you know, Matt Berry. So we know him from the IT crowd where he played one of the ridiculous bosses, uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, The Mighty Boosh, and, of course, What We Do in the Shadows. So, you know, it's good to hear his voice again, even if he's only playing a droid. We've got uh, Dave Pasquesi playing the Major Domo, who's the guy who is um, 2IC to the uh, mayor of uh, Moss Esper. I don't know who makes these names up on Tatooine. And Jennifer Beals also pops up as well. And she's playing a uh, Twi'lek, you know, the aliens with the long tentacles down from the back of their head. Um, she runs a cantina there. Uh, I think Robert Rodriguez also gets to voice one of the characters too, you know. That's what you do when you're the director. You can't get yourself a, a credit in a Star Wars production so that maybe they'll do an action figure about you <laughs> someday. Hey, who wouldn't want that? Although, you know, there's now a Star Wars action figure of um, Werner Herzog. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> so, okay, first two episodes I've seen. Uh, look, there are some things that we're going to have to get into in, in uh, the book of Boba Fett, we're going to have to find out how did he escape from that Sarlacc pit. Turns out it was pretty easy, actually, but, uh, you know, hey, it wasn't going to be the subject of an entire episode. Oh, that actually, it's not a bad idea when you think about it. Uh, and we have to distinguish Boba Fett from being a clone, so to speak, of the Mandalorian character. Well, they've achieved that so far. I did have my doubts. Um, they've deprived... Fett of his distinctive armour in some flashbacks so they can develop him outside of being spam in a can. Uh, and he actually does take his helmet off a lot more than uh, our Mandalorian character does. And, of course, he doesn't actually have a Mandalorian background so far as we know in this setting. How does he deal with becoming a crime lord? He's not out trying to save baby Yoda. It looks like he will have a mission on Tatooine that's possibly uh, more... Um, noble than just being a crime lord. I think we're setting him up to be a bit like um, Paul Atreides on Arrakis. Maybe the book of Boba Fett should be titled House Fett of Dune. And clearly he's going to have a lot to say about how the original inhabitants of Tatooine, the Tusken Raiders, well, how they're treated by the colonists and what happens with them going forwards. I'm up for that. They've done that with some sensitivity and care. Uh, it's not playing so much as the saviour trope for an indigenous population as something a bit different and more nuanced. Um, the other people involved in his entourage include a couple of Gamorans left over from Jabba the Hutt's regime. And, of course, he's going to have trouble as the Hutt's relatives, the twins, 
appear to regain control of their relatives' lost territory. And there is a power vacuum that's been created by the execution of Jabba the Hutt by Princess Leia in Return of the Jedi. Look, it's full of Western tropes and of macho man toughness, but leavened by that wonderful sense of humour that characterised the Mandalorian too, as well as just a little bit of uh, Wile E. Coyote stuff going on here, as it was in The Mandalorian. If just a few sort of things that they put together that reminded me a little bit of some Acme <laughs> operations at times. There is a hell of a train chase in the second episode, which is as good as any that I've seen. And looks like a, a little bit of a, a running gag is we keep reverting to Boba Fett in a Bacta tank, which is to say a kind of an auto-dock that heals all of his injuries. It's nice to see them lean into the Tusken Raider culture in this and give them a face, well, as much as you can beneath the sand masks that they're wearing. We even have train music too at one stage and I thought that was pretty cool. So if you want to find out more than you ever wanted to know about a gaffy stick, which is the Tusken Raiders' traditional sort of spear club quarterstaff weapon, well, then The Book of Boba Fett is for you. Dropping an episode a week, two episodes in, there's seven episodes in all on Disney+. Plus. All right, I'm enjoying this show and it'll do until I get uh, some more Mandalorian, hopefully one day in the future. Oh, I did like the, uh, <laughs> the fact that the train reminded me a little bit of... Um, the snow piercer, let's call it the sand piercer, and every time it rattled past on its uh, uh, magnetic repulsor lifts, I, I kept thinking, sand piercer, 1,500 cars long. I don't know. It's, it's probably getting a bit too confusing for me watching all these train shows. Uh, what do we have in terms of music? Well, I'm not going to drop um, tomorrow Morrison's... Uh, golden pipes upon you because he actually does have pretty good uh, singing voice and he's got his own album i'll do that in future actually i've got some of those tucked away for that uh, moment when we go celebrity singer on zero g but we will instead play the track the book of boba fett the main title and once again the music here as with the mandalorian it's been done by ludwig goranson and really evocative and helps you uh, lift out the character of Boba Fett all on his own here, standing aside from the Mandalorian. This is Ashley C. Williams. I played Lindsay in The Human Centipede and the title character in Julia. You're listening to Zero G on 3 R. Yeah. Ludwig Goranson's theme for the book of Boba Fett there before I transitioned into Don't Look Up, the main title theme from that particular movie which we're going to discuss now and that was by Nicholas Brittell, the OST composer for the Netflix film Don't Look Up which is not... A post-apocalyptic movie, well, kind of is in at least a little bit of its uh, composition, but basically it is a in-the-middle-of-an-apocalypse movie. 
Yes, I know. We're leaning into it here on Zero G today. But, you know, it doesn't take us all that far from our current circumstances because it is a satirical science fiction film and the disaster in it is pretty much a metaphor for both the pandemic and for climate change too. Now, it's a 2021 US American film. It's written, produced and directed by Adam McKay. And, well, as I was saying, it's a metaphor for both the upcoming, ongoing, past, present and future catastrophe, the emergency of climate change and also the current pandemic, and which has given us a repeat crash course in idiocy and mostly unfounded scepticism about actual science, and the rabid dissemination of conspiracy fantasies and so on. So, Adam McKay. US-American filmmaker and comedian. He has been head writer for Saturday Night Live for at least two seasons, and he's worked a lot with uh, Will Ferrell and worked on the films Anchorman and The Other Guys. He was a writer on Ant-Man the movie, a producer of The Land of the Lost, the reboot, and Hansel and Gretel, the Witch Hunters, amongst other things. So... What do we have here with Don't Look Up? Well, as you can probably imagine from the title, it is about a comet. And this is an Ellie comet, which is to say an extinction-level event. It's going to hit Earth in six months. And it has been confirmed by all of the people who confirm such things, the Planetary Defence Coordination Office and NASA and everybody else outside of the US too. And so it has been discovered by a couple of boffins from the astronomical wing of Michigan State University. So Leonardo DiCaprio plays Dr. Randall Mindy and Jennifer Lawrence is there as Kate Diabaski. I need not introduce either of those particular characters. They both have their science fiction and fantasy credits, particularly Jennifer Lawrence, who has a lot of them. And basically, they are the two characters who are trying to present the real science of this movie. The fact that this comet is soon going to be quite visible in our skies and indeed on our planetary surface after it impacts. We also have in here, fighting the good fight, Rob Morgan, who's head of the aforementioned Planetary Defence Coordination Office, which is a real thing, by the way. And we've seen him before playing Turk Barrett in all six of the Netflix Marvel television series, which now kind of are incorporated into the canon of the Marvel television universe and perhaps beyond. Let's not give you any spoilers. Uh, and, you know, there are other characters in here who are played by people like Kate Blanchett and... Um, who's a host of a daily show, and Meryl Streep playing the character of President of the United States, uh, Janie Orleon. Now, they probably pronounce it Orlean. Anyway, she is a Trumpian-like character who has her own son as Chief of Staff. And so, you know, you've got that kind of thing going on there. She's basically an idiot. <laughs> I can't put it in any 
finer terms than that, who is so obsessed with her public appearance and her presidential popularity rating and everything else. Basically, when she's told about this incoming disaster, it's like, well, you know, let's um, assess and evaluate more. Let's not do anything about it. We've also got Mark Rylance playing Peter Ishwell, a sort of a composite tech billionaire. He's in charge of a uh, company called Bash and obviously uh, an important donor to the president. So you're going to have lots of um, uh, interplay between them in terms of, well, you can't actually say anything (laughs) to the president unless you happen to be Peter Ishwell. And he's actually a really fine piece of work. Uh, Look, I'm sure you could name the the tech billionaires he's he's channeling quite easily. Uh, Although one thing that does set him apart from Elon Musk is that basically a lot of Elon Musk's technology actually works, but we won't go there for that. This is just the guy he's channeling and he's also got a bit of Zuckerberg because of uh, some... Uh, algorithms that he's running, particularly intrusive and privacy-violating um, <laughs> privacy algorithms too. And he's very creepy in this and played, I think, with to perfection. So is uh, actually uh, the president too. You would expect her to be if um, it's being f- uh, fielded by Meryl Streep and so it is. And she is just unbelievable in, in this role. In fact, I actually think it's extremely well re- acted across the board. Uh, Timothy Chalamet plays a young shoplifter. (laughs) We've got Ron Perlman playing, well, sort of a gung-ho military hero who's not a million miles away from Slim Pickens' character in Dr. Strangelove. And, of course, this movie does resemble that Kubrickian black comedy quite a bit. We've also got Ariana Grande playing a pop star, not a million miles away from her actual lifestyle, and Michael Chiklis. Remember him playing the guy out of The Shield and also uh, Ben Grimm in the two first Fantastic Four movies, I should say, the the second and third Fantastic Four movies, not mentioning uh, (laughs) Roger Corman in this context. And speaking of Fantastic Four movies, Chris Evans as well, gets a, a little bit of a cameo in this, placing him beside his um, old Fantastic Four movie buddy because Chickless played Ben Grimm and Chris Evans played the Human Torch, of course. Uh, Sarah Silverman gets a pop-up role in this too, being her usual satirical self. All right, so this is Don't Look Up. It is a splendid movie, I thought. It has copped a bit of a critical shellacking for being unsubtle. Well, duh, <laughs> You know, after two years of coping with nonsense, anti-vaxxing rubbish and all sorts of other ridiculous things and, you know, being told that maybe we could internalise bleach by the President of the United States, it probably doesn't go far enough. Don't look up. I know it's been very popular with climate change scientists who just nod when they look at it and go, yep, this is pretty much how it works. Sit tight and assess, goodness me. Well, look, I think that this is a a movie that you're either going to love or you're going to hate if you are 
in any way muddle-headed about everything. If you're a magic thinker, you ain't going to like this one. Uh, they're not trying too hard to get you on side because really, you know, this is not a thing for balance, not a thing for even-handedness. But in other terms, it's actually a pretty good satire of the, the cometary asteroid impact kind of science fiction movies, which we have seen a lot of over time. You know, we've had uh, Meteor and Asteroid and everything in between Armageddon, uh, you know, Deep Impact, which is actually a more serious film than most of those other ones that I've mentioned. But, you know, it has its tropes and its cliches too. And this movie also is quite effective. You know, they when they do actually uh, work on the comet in question in terms of how that's going to be dealt with and how it's going to actually impact literally the lives of everybody actually is quite affecting and moving. And, you know, there are some scenes in this where I'm just sitting there going, well... That was uncomfortable. That was confronting. And it's supposed to be. The end of the world is supposed to be confronting and cause emotion and uh, cause a stir. It's not to be spun or marketed or media managed or any of those other things in spite of what the characters here would do. I think they do miss a couple of steps at one stage. Uh, I think there are less photographs taken with mobile phones than I would actually expect in real life. And there's also a moment where some of the naysayers, uh, the people who um, have adopted the chant, don't look up because, you know, there's no such thing as a, a killer comet. Uh, when they uh, finally learn that they've been duped by their political and social masters, they change their minds. <laughs> In the real world, as we know, there's a lot of people who just don't change their minds, even with reality staring them straight in the face, about to smack them in the back of the head in this case. So, you know, this stands very well, actually, I think, amongst the categories of Death from the Skies movie, uh, some movies like Meteor and Armageddon, and more recently Greenland, which I think we did actually review on Zero G, and going back all the way back to When Worlds Collide, for example. So, yeah, it is Don't Look Up, and... I would advise you to look it up. It is a little bit long for this kind of movie. They could probably have landed it in a more handier, quicker fashion, but I'm glad that they didn't because, well, look, it did preach to the converted here, but, you know, what can I say? <laughs> if you liked uh, Brain Dead, which had way more songs in it, that television show about uh, the political problems in Washington. You will probably like this film. And if you liked Dr. Strangelove, it'll be right up your alley. And there's a big chunk of this movie, well, okay, a, a section of this movie, a particular section of this movie that reminds me of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, I won't tell you about exactly why it reminds me of that. You'll have to wait and see. But obviously... Stay for the credits of this one, and how could you not? <laughs> it's called Don't Look Up, and it's streaming now. All right, so we will go out with a track from the soundtrack album of this, wheeled out, of course, so quickly in the digital world, and this is called Just Look Up, 
from the OST of Don't from Don't Look Up, and it is actually done by Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi. Now, they play characters within this movie that uh, mirror certain aspects of popular culture as social media dictates and also reality TV and breakfast television in the United States. But it's still actually not a bad track. It does have some explicit lyrics in it, so watch out. But, you know, against the obscenity of anti-science and crazies in this film, I don't know, is it all that obscene? Up to you. I give you the warning. All right, that's about it for Zero G for today. Magic Steve coming up next with Astral Glamour. And I'd like to thank our co-host Megan McHugh and also our podcaster, Kayla Larson. Whilst advising you that if there are any difficulties with the podcast over the next couple of weeks, it's down to me and not Kayla, who does an excellent job of making us sound good in pod form. All right. That's it for Zero G today. Out with Just Look Up from the Don't Look Up OST. And it does have some explicit lyrics, but probably nothing more than you would hear from really frustrated climate change scientists talking about the issue of the day and indeed the century. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.